0: morning. Uh, so before we get into the lesson, um, something I was thinking about bringing up. Uh, so this week's been kind of strange. Um, there's, there's been a lot of calls and texts that I've gotten this week that I have not responded to. Um, I got a stomach virus uh, on Tuesday from Devin that also hit Glenn <laughs> and felt really awful on Tuesday and Wednesday so I didn't like respond to anything for a couple days there and then I went to Tampa there was a wedding in Tampa that I went to um, because there's a very specific person who is very special to me who was at that wedding as well Um, and just got back last night so I apologize for like the great neglect that has swept through this week for me towards everybody (laughs) Um, so the lesson for this morning um, we're gonna be doing just a really simple lesson. Um, really, this is gonna be looking at what I think encompasses basically every view of Mark sixteen sixteen. 16. Um, th- this is a way of looking at this passage that I actually heard from an older preacher some years ago, and it's proven to be very helpful for me, and I've seen it in studies be helpful for other people, even if, even if they don't submit or yield or believe, um, what this passage is saying, it at least gives opportunity to have very clear conversations about what the passage is and is not saying. Uh, I thought about talking about baptism, which is the uh, central point of this passage. I thought about giving a, a sermon like specifically focused on baptism for a while now. Um, and I think this church has a lot of diversity within it. There are new Christians here, and there are Um, people who visit consistently. um, And I think there's just a diversity of understanding and comprehending some of these truths that uh, I just see a need for us to continue to have a a firmer sense of grounded unity on a passage like this and on the implications that come from it. It's really a practice of just listening, Um, not to me, but to the word of God. Uh, This is a very simple and straightforward passage um, I'll put it on the board. This is the New American Standard version of uh, the text. Um, I'm going to start reading in my Bible from verse 15. Just to set the scene in Mark's Gospel, everything very abruptly moves um, in Mark 16 when Jesus rises from the dead. In verse 14, you know we don't even really have time in the Gospel of Mark to really get to the point of Jesus talking or interacting with dis- with his disciples to an extent where, like, Everything is settled and there's great belief among his disciples. Verse 14 says that they even were just rebuked for the fact that they were not believing that he had risen from the dead. And verse 15, Jesus then says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and is baptized or has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned one of the things for somebody who doesn't believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, sometimes they'll point to the second part of this verse, and they'll say, well, I mean, don't you see there, I mean, in the second part of the verse, he said, you know, he who does not believe will be condemned. Uh, And they'll point to that, and they'll say that because baptism's not mentioned in the second part of the verse, then it's not necessary. But I just want to ask the question, like, what is the second part of the verse telling us what it's there for. The first part of the verse is telling us what to do to be saved. The second part of the verse is telling us what to do to be condemned, right? So all you need to do to be condemned is just not believe. That's what the second part of the verse is. So if we want to understand, well, what do we need to do to be saved? We have to look at the part of the verse that's telling us how to do that, right? Again, it's it's a practice of just listening, listening to the word of God and just taking what Jesus says and accepting it, which can be very difficult at times, right, with all the baggage that you have to unpack to get there. Um, So this is going to be very simple. What I'm going to do is just look at different views, and really with some of these views, not go too much into detail, but just make some points about the nature of the view, and then move forward. And just slightly modifying the language, even if it's not how somebody may state the view, with the context of Mark sixteen sixteen. what would the view sound like with this verse? So view number one, a lot of people, and maybe the grand majority of like all people hold this view. And the view would be this, he who has believed and has been baptized shall not be saved. The idea is even if you believe and even if you're baptized, like none of it, none of it actually really matters because there is no God. So, this would be like an atheistic view. It could also include like non Christian religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. You know, the idea is like if you believe the Bible and if you do the things that God has said at all, none of it really amounts to anything because there's no, sub, there's no substance or reality beyond any um, hope that somebody may have in their own minds. Uh, just a couple of scriptures that I think address this turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul, when he was speaking to people in Athens who did not have a background in Judaism, I think makes a really fair point in um, at least instigating some higher thoughts about the validity of what he was preaching and bringing to them. Again, this was not a Jewish audience. These were people who had really been hearing about all of this for the very first time. And he says in verse 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You know, the idea is that like Christianity really is not based in wishful thinking. And a lot of times I think people really misunderstand what faith is Um Like, you'll hear people talk about this idea of having a blind faith. And there is a sense where we do trust God on the basis of his character, even when we don't have the absolute certainty of every factor involved in following God. But really, fundamentally, Christianity is based on historical truth. So what Paul is saying in verse 31 is, yes, you're not from a Jewish background. I understand that. But God has still given proof to everybody in the fact that, that Jesus historically had come into the world and publicly risen from the dead. And I think understanding that Christianity is based on historical fact is very helpful to understand and substantiating and grounding belief that may not be grounded in the right way, or at least could be grounded in a more scriptural way. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's um, kind of a similar, similar idea. Um, and if this this is something that really separates uh, Christianity and faith in Jesus from other religions that men have created. Um, really verse 6, it's talking about how there's one God and one mediator uh, who is Christ Jesus. And verse 6 who gave himself a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Again, the idea is that Jesus' Jesus's historical coming into the world serves as a testimony of the reality that there is only one true God. And this one true living God has testified to both his existence and his nature through a man who came into the world, and that is Jesus Christ. So that's one way to think about this view. Um, View number two. He who has not believed and has not been baptized shall be saved. Um, This is, again, a very popular view. This would be something that you might call universalism. Um, you'll especially uh, hear this when going to, like, funerals. Like, it's just kind of interesting. You go to a funeral, and basically, no matter how somebody's lived, like, things are generally said about them being in heaven or being with God. Uh, because generally, people want to believe in hope without what it takes to receive that hope, right? So universalists would, would say, well, even if somebody hasn't believed, even if they haven't been baptized, you know, they'll still be saved. Um, and that's, that's very common. Verses that I think we're we're familiar with, especially John 14, verse 6, if you want to turn there. Um, There's another passage we'll look at for one of these other views in Matthew 7. But Jesus generally paints a very exclusive and narrow picture of really what it means to be close to God in salvation. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, even if you just kind of logically think about God, you know, if you think about, okay, so nature and just existence testifies to the fact that there is, like, intelligence and a creator, and then you have Jesus and his historical coming into the world. Even think about that outside of the Bible and just everything that changed in the world permanently, in just history in general, when Jesus came into the world, you add into that the testimony of like what scripture is, what the bible is as a series of combined documents. You know, and if there is if there is even potentially a god and Jesus came into the world to testify to this god, then Jesus and his words represent truth and the truth of who this god is. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the father but through me, then that serves as a testimony greater than what I may wish or think in my own mind and I don't really get then to broaden the way of salvation by my imagination when Jesus historically spoke of a more exclusive way that we need to follow so nobody comes to the Father but through him look at second Thessalonians um, chapter one um, I think this is another important verse that speaks to this uh, very clearly um, We're going to read specifically um, verses 8 and 9, but he's really talking about how God is going to judge with affliction those who are persecuting the Thessalonians. And in verse 8 he says, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So will everybody just universally be saved just because God is gracious and merciful, right? Or do the hopes that we have for people, does that have greater power than the power of God's words and the truth that's testified in the word? Um, The testimony is that not everybody will be saved, but specifically in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, um, I'm sorry, verse 8, those who don't know God and who are not going to obey the gospel will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, right? View number three, he who has not believed and has been baptized shall be saved. This would be the view of those who practice infant baptism. Um, Churches like the Catholic Church and others who have branched off of Catholicism um, have that view. And I've studied with people who um, have this view and they do try to have like a scriptural argument for their practice of infant baptism, right? Um, so this is again, it's a very real, very common practice, but there are a lot of passages. Again, um, I didn't I didn't adjust the the scriptures um, for that practice of infant, infant baptism, but um, turn to Acts chapter two, um, verse thirty-eight. Um, the way that I usually hear uh, this view, at least scripturally uh, espoused, is that when an infant is being baptized, it's the parent who's believing, and like the infant is inheriting that belief through them baptizing the infant. But when you look at Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight, Devin referenced verse thirty-seven, where they they heard the message of Jesus. They were pierced to the heart when they heard it. They asked the question, what shall we do? And then Peter told those people who themselves were convicted and believed what they were hearing. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, can a baby do that? Can a baby even ask the question, well, what shall I do? Can a baby have the sense to repent of its sins and understand its own need for the remission of the sins that that baby has committed? Well, I mean, we know that's just not possible. So even just fundamentally, you think about scriptures where Jesus, like John 14, verse 6, so clearly espouses the fact that somebody who's seeking him and following him must have their own sense of faith and conviction in order to be saved it fundamentally contradicts a very popular practice we see in the world around us. It should be somewhat alarming that so commonly things are practiced that are in such fundamental contradiction to some of the most simple and clearest truths in scripture, right? And again, it's simply a practice of listening. Like, none of these things are complicated. It's really not something that takes very long, even reading your own Bible and looking to the place where you can relate and see your place in Scripture, it doesn't take long to get to a place to see what you need to do, and it doesn't take long to see things that are going to begin to contradict, maybe some things that your family or maybe even you yourself have believed in the past. But it's just a matter of, am I willing when I read Scripture to let the simplicity of what's spoken conquer and override Things that I may prefer or practice that don't match with the simplicity of Scripture, right? So Acts two thirty eight would be a good scripture um, for those who are practicing infant baptism, and I think with um, studying with people who believe um, these kinds of things, um, the person specifically I'm thinking of, or I would have ongoing studies about this. Like, they would try to present arguments that they thought were very convincing, and they were not convinced by scriptures like this that were very simple. I would just really encourage you to not feel like you need to, like, come up with some grandiose or new argument that, like, is able to impress this person or somehow, like, work around the maze of their logic, which is very tempting to feel. Really, like, if these simple scriptures aren't enough, there really isn't anything that's powerful enough to convince or persuade someone who's just not willing to listen to these things. These scriptures are as clear as they need to be and as simple as they need to be. And it really doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. It's just a matter of if somebody is willing to listen. View number four. This might be one of the most common views that I encounter when I'm studying with people who are generally, like, zealous and religious in what they've been following as Christianity for their life. And the idea is he who has believed and has not been baptized shall be saved. This would be salvation by faith only. Um, somebody might not say it in these words exactly, and usually a person who believes salvation by faith only will still say that baptism is an important practice to follow. Um, but they won't they won't agree that it's necessary for salvation or is something that needs to be done with an understanding that that is something you're doing for the remission of your sins, what they'll usually say is that it's more of a sign of commitment or it's like pledging yourself fully to the Lord after your salvation. So that like, almost like you yourself understand the commitment and the cost of discipleship. Again, not for salvation, but kind of like a pledge or a seal in a sense of those things. Um, Think just generally for salvation by faith only. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. You know, when you really read the Gospels without bias, you know, you you prepare yourself to just really understand and seek Jesus the way he defines it and just let him radically recalibrate everything that inevitably is going to be just completely out of alignment. In my heart, as I approach him, Things are so simplified. You think about how Matthew is the first gospel account. And in the first gospel, this is included in the first sermon, in the first gospel. And here's what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And you go back to verse 13 as well. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, but the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. What Jesus is saying in verse 21 is there's going to be a lot of people who have a very strong sense of conviction and they even know Him to have been the Lord. They're very convicted, very persuaded about that fact. And yet, and you look at verse 23, those same people, have been so disillusioned with an incomplete faith that they hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Obviously, it takes more than just faith only for a person to inherit eternal life. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 46. This verse is just a very slight retelling, really of the same idea, um, the same command even, in Luke six forty-six. <clears throat> Again, very similar but stated just slightly differently. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Simple. Again, this is in the first first full sermon of Jesus in Luke's gospel account as well. So you just imagine if you're getting to know Jesus without bias, without like bringing baggage into it to, to overlook very essential things that you're being warned about or instructed uh, to seek and to follow and to apply. And just what would this do to your thinking? If you were really going to read this and be diligent to let this be true, even amidst everything you've ever heard in your life, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I say? How would that impact your heart and your mentality? If you were hearing that for the first time with no bias and a total willingness to yield. Turn to James chapter 2. Um, James chapter 2. I want to read this section, and then I want to mention an objection that I've very commonly heard when I've even, like, studied this exact outline um, that I really think is not a valid way of saying this scripture doesn't apply to this principle. So I'll read it first, and I'll I'll mention more of, like, what I mean after reading this. Uh, James chapter 2, starting verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So what I've usually heard is that what this scripture is talking about would not apply to salvation specifically, at least in its like initial, um, initial circumstance, that this would maybe be more faith as it's applied after salvation. I would say that's right in a way but I would also bring attention to the fact that in verse uh, 25 when it mentions Rahab the harlot just imagine this she was still a Canaanite when she received the spies when they came in to spy out the land of Canaan they came into Jericho Uh, they were found out and they were looked for she housed them hid them And then she made this covenant with them. She asked them to spare her and everyone in her house when Jericho would be destroyed by Israel and by God when they would invade the land. And they told her to tie a scarlet thread around her window. And as long as she did that, then she would be saved with her household in the destruction, right? So just imagine. Imagine Rahab hearing this initial instruction that was intended to give her entrance and citizenship. As an Israelite, and she thinks like, "Are you kidding me? I've got to do something." Well, that's not fair. Like, if I do this, well, then I feel like I feel like I'm earning my way into Israel. That just doesn't seem right. You just imagine like how ridiculous a thought that would have been. It's like whatever God says, like, "Thank you." Like my life is being saved. I mean, you tell me that I've got to tie a scarlet thread, and then like wear like black clothing and like put on like a magical hat or something you know like whatever it takes as long as my life is saved I'll do it right I think really the real reason why somebody is so hesitant to want to consider these things is because they are so accustomed to the idea of salvation that reconsidering reconsidering it again is not being looked at with the same urgency or humility so here's another example I would study with somebody in Alabama for about, like, two years or three years. It was a really difficult study. Um, One of the things that came out pretty early on is this person had studied with somebody in the past about salvation and baptism, like somebody who is teaching the truth about it. And when I brought it up, he actually, like, moaned audibly. And it was like he knew that we were going to get there. and He was very disappointed that I had brought it up. So we would continue studying and we would come back to it again. And he would moan again and be visibly distraught that, like, here we go again, you know, meeting on that topic. And here's what he said I will study anything in the Bible with you, but let's never talk about this. Do you, like, hear how empty and hypocritical that is? Can you imagine if, like, you were in a relationship with somebody, right? Uh, And you told them outright, like, look, can we just, like, do and talk about all the stuff that I already, like, want to do and already agree with? But, like, that stuff that, like, you enjoy and that you want to talk about that, like, only is on you and I don't already enjoy, like, let's never actually do or talk about those things. Is that in any way a real relationship? You know what that told me about this person's relationship with God? It was completely fake and one-sided. If somebody's not willing to be fundamentally challenged by clear, simple truths, that person's religion is empty and their relationship with God is fake. We have always got to be willing to humble ourselves and listen. Even if somebody else is conveying something that we don't agree with, just at least like listen. What is the word saying? And be fair. What is scripture saying? And if it's clear, submit to it. Always do what God says, no matter what. It doesn't matter who, uh, who believes or speaks otherwise. Remember Matthew chapter 7. The way is so narrow that there are many who believe so firmly that they know the Lord who are going to hear they were never known in the first place. We've got to let God be the God of our lives, even when we have to step away from tradition groups that we've loved before um view number five he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved so this is obviously like what mark 16 and 16 is saying and i just want to ask you the question like whose view is this um you may like study this with somebody and may think well isn't that like what the church of christ believes like that's like the church of christ teaching um but something that I think is important to establish is this is actually Jesus' view of baptism and salvation. This isn't just like a denominational view of a like quote-unquote Church of Christ doctrine or practice. This is simply just the view of Jesus. And again, if you're going to read Scripture fairly, and if you're going to read to the point where you're looking for that point where it becomes relevant for you, as an illustration, Imagine an Israelite in the Old Testament. And they have like even just the five first books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Imagine as an Israelite, you're reading the Old Testament scriptures that you have. And how strange it would be to like focus on the portions of the law that aren't even yet fully relevant to Israelite living. So like maybe just the first few chapters of Genesis and you read about, like, Abraham's faith, and you're looking at things that God with Abraham, and you, like, you cling to that. But then when it gets into circumcision, and then, like, the national law, and the covenant that involved blood, and the Levitical system, imagine you thought, like, mm, I'm really not as interested in that. Like, I really like this Genesis part, where, like, it's just Abraham and God, and, like, he had this faith, and he was circumcised, and, like, go wherever he wanted, and God was with him everywhere. And then you actually used that way of thinking to actually disobey and neglect the parts of the law that clearly that was leading to in ways that were very directly relevant to your citizenship. The reason I say all of that, sometimes people will point so heavily at the Gospels when Jesus was living, and they'll say like, look, over and over again, Jesus says your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. That's true. But what about when Jesus ascends from the dead and gives instructions to where it becomes directly relevant to our approach to Jesus? What do we do with that? Look at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Again, just how like clear and simple and direct Jesus is when as soon as you get to the portion of Scripture where you can see in your reading that now we're getting to the point where this is becoming relevant for my relationship with Jesus and my approach to him, And what I need to do now that Jesus has risen and has ascended back to God, what is the common gospel that was preached to all creation from that point forward? In verse 18 of Matthew 28, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus, like right here, in one of the most important charges he had ever given and would ever give, in giving the Great Commission, to tell them to proclaim the gospel to all creation, in verse 19, coupled with making disciples, is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This view is not just Jesus' view. It's the view of God the Father. It's the view of the Holy Spirit. And obviously, like Acts 2.38, when we were reading about the first time that Jesus was preached, risen from the dead, when the message was made relevant for the people who crucified him, it was repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you're reading right here, and you're kind of on the edge of your seat with this cliffhanger, and you're thinking like, whoa, what does this look like? I mean, what, what's next? And you turn to the book of Acts. It's not like 20 chapters in the Acts. It's right in the beginning at the first sermon. This baptism is more explicitly qualified and described immediately. What do you do with that? Turn to Acts chapter 22, verse 16. You know, if there was anybody that God could have chosen to maybe save differently... It could have been the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was an apostle. He would describe as born out of due season. So everything about Paul was like a little bit different. He had seen Jesus when Jesus had already ascended back to heaven. He was an apostle when it seemed like the apostleship was a closed office that nobody else would inherit. And he had even seen Jesus directly and understood him to be Lord when he saw him. So you could think like if anybody deserved an exception... It would have been this person that Jesus appeared directly to on the road to Damascus. But in verse 16, just like everybody else, Ananias, a disciple of Jesus Christ, is sent to Paul to instruct him man to man and teach him what he still needed to do after he already understood that Jesus was Lord and was convinced and had been praying. What he still needed to do to inherit the salvation that he was earnestly seeking at that point. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I'll tell you guys, it's scary. I have literally read this with people and asked them to tell me what that was saying, and they would not say it and I've asked them to read that passage and when they saw what it was saying, they refused to read it. Why? What is happening in the heart of someone like that that can be so easily in my heart that prevents even a fundamental willingness to even look at something that is being clearly said? What do you think that is? So the question is, where do you fit in in all this? Like, what, what view do you take on this? And if there's other views, I'd be open to, like, hearing it. There might be others. But it seems to me that this pretty much encompasses everything I've encountered with this passage. Um, my dad, when, uh, when he was in a relationship with my mom, and I don't think they were married yet, um, my dad grew up Lutheran. He was baptized as an infant, so he held that uh, third view. He who has not believed and has been baptized will be saved. He grew up, like you know, having that firm sense of belief that he was saved, that he was a child of God because he was baptized as an infant. And one day he ended up being confronted with the truth that that's not a view that Scripture advocates. And he had to go back and read Scripture almost for the first time and examine the Book of Acts. And well, what did they do? Is there room for that view? And he ended up needing to yield to the fact that he actually was not saved, and needed to do what the Bible said he needed to do to be saved. Um, him and my mom, uh, both at that time. So where do you fit in? And are you willing to even radically change your view of things when you find yourself on the wrong side of truth? That doesn't just happen once. That's a continual process of approaching God's Word, and. There's an invitation that I want to extend, um, and this will not be necessarily like a super short invitation. But will you let God's judgment stand and abide in it? Because the thing is, even if I was baptized, my concern is that I don't necessarily fully reflect this truth in how I live and see people, right? So even after like obeying God and seeing that baptism is necessary for for salvation. It can be easy to see people in a way that God doesn't define because of my own sense of love and my own hopes that really don't fit with God's word. But if God's made a judgment, this relates back to the lesson last week. We talked about honor being given to masters from servants and how if that's God's judgment, then that has to stand. No matter how a servant may feel about their master, no matter how a master may treat their servant, if that's God's judgment, that's, ultimately is what must rule and it's the same with salvation and everything else so not only do i not get to have judgment of who doesn't get saved but i also don't get to be the judge of who gets to be saved right that must be left to god and i have the responsibility then of living in and abiding in that judgment and living in a way that reflects the reality of that judgment Some of you, I know, have family members that you love who have not been baptized for the mission of their sins, who have a lot of excitement about God. They may even have a devotion to God that you admire. But the reality is they have not obeyed Jesus in this instruction. What do you do with that? Turn to Romans chapter 9. I think one of the hardest things with this judgment is comprehending the fact that there are implications of all of these things that really mean that there are so many people who I love so many people who have an appearance of a zeal and love for God this means that they are not saved without any gray area they may be serving God to the best of their ability they may even be sincere but if they have not obeyed God in fundamental truth of salvation the reality is they're not saved Look at Romans chapter 9. I think Paul's way of thinking through this toward his Jewish brethren is really helpful. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises Who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Two things about this. First, in the latter part, especially verse 4, I don't know if you caught this, but do you notice that Paul is actually saying his Jewish brethren have a right to salvation? They have a right to salvation. But even though they have a right, look back at verse 3. He acknowledges that they're separated from Christ, that they're accursed. And he wishes that he could do something like separate himself from Jesus for their sake, but that's not how God has judged it to be. So he prays for them. I think a lot of times what people will do is they'll have so much sorrow in the thoughts of their loved ones being separated from God, they would rather compromise the truth of God's judgment than deal with the reality of that sorrow. But Paul treats these things as just objectionable, an objectionable truth. That this is a truth that whether somebody believes it or not, this is simply reality. And no matter what Paul does, no matter what anybody else may do, no matter how zealous somebody be, that does nothing to change God's judgment on the matter. Right? So Romans 10, you would talk about those who are zealous for God, but have not submitted to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's simply the reality. So if you have not stood with God's judgment in this, I would have just asked, why? Like, really assess yourself. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, like, what's what's stopping you from that? Because the invitation is to not be condemned, ultimately. And you don't need to leave here in that condition. But if you need to come before the church, ask for the prayers of the saints, to put on Christ in baptism, to confess sin, whatever it may be, come forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.